As I was watching uh, TV last week, I saw an interview with uh, comedian Bill Maher about his upcoming movie called Religulous, or Religulous, or something of that effect. It's about religion being ridiculous, okay? And as I watched the interview, I found uh, that it was not really funny at all. It was not humorous. In fact, it reminded me of what Satan does to attack the church and the truth. By making people who believe the truth feel stupid. Because they believe in miracles. As he explained, we have to remember, the Bible was written at a time when people didn't know where the sun went at night. What made women pregnant? Where a germ or a bug came from? So it's forgivable that they believe these things. But now, it's 2008. You see, that settles it right there. Now it's 2008. Uh, we are scientifically advanced. We are intelligent people. Uh, we know about atoms and molecules, and uh, we understand laws of nature and the laws of physics. We're intelligent, smart human beings. We know where the sun goes at night. It doesn't disappear. The moon, or rather the earth, simply rotates on its axis. And so it, it was understandable that, that thousands of years ago, these poor, naive, silly people could understand, or rather believe, things like the sun standing still, or the moon, or the sun disappearing uh, at night. But now we can't believe in these kinds of miracles. Now we can't believe in miracles like virgin births. Now we can't believe in such things as incarnations of the Son of God. Now we cannot believe in such things as resurrections because we live in such an advanced age. We live in 2008. Well, as I was thinking about that, as I was thinking about Joshua chapter 10, I was thinking that there is a parallel here, certainly with this idea that uh, they lived in a day and age when they believed the, the sun just sort of vanished at night. Almost the, that you could believe in this idea easier back in Joshua's day that things like the sun could stand still and the moon could stand still. And so began to wonder, what does this passage have for us this morning? What does it have for the people of God in 2008 when we read about incredible, uh, challenging miracles like we read about here in Joshua 10? And, and what we have to learn from this chapter this morning, and I trust that we will see this and apply it to our own hearts, is that, uh, that Joshua here, or rather God, uh, through Joshua and through Israel, fights for his enemies and harnesses the very forces of nature to defeat his foes. Not just a Canaanite coalition of kings, but radical skeptics and atheists who refuse to repent and trust in the Lord as well. I want us to see the build-up, first of all, to this divine intervention it's uh, recorded for us in the first few verses of our chapter here this morning. It centers around the Jerusalem king, Adonizadek, who is in fear and also uh, wants to lash out at Israel. Now, notice here that uh, the king of Jerusalem manifests a very different posture than 
uh, some of the kings before. And we noted this as even as we looked at chapter 9, the last time we looked at the book of Joshua, that prior to Joshua 9, the kings of the land were in, in a state of panic. Uh, they were deeply concerned because they had heard about uh, the sovereignty and the power of God in delivering Israel from Egypt. They'd heard about uh, Israel walking across the Red Sea on dry land. They had heard about Joshua and, and Israel walking across the Jordan River. They had heard about the crumbling walls of Jericho. And, and all of the kings of the land were uh, quaking in fear. And, and they were in unrest and alarm. Now you come to chapter 9 you see that uh, they have strengthened their resolve to hate the Lord even more. Because they fear him, now they hate him even more than they did before. And so they're bonding together. While those kings bond together in chapter 9, Gibeon came to its senses and came uh, to Israel and uh, used deception and pretended to be uh, quasi-believers and religious and they extorted a peace treaty uh, with Israel for protection. Well, that's all backdrop now to chapter 10 because as you look at the first verse, you realize that um, that was really the straw that broke the camel's back for Adoni Zedek. Look at verse 1. It says, It came about when Adoni Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured Ai. He'd utterly destroyed it, just as he had done to Jericho and its king, so he had done to Ai and its king. And that the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were with their land, he feared greatly. You see, it was the it was the final thing really for this king. He said, Well, if if God can lead Israel to defeat Jericho and Ai, and now he uh, enters into peace with a nation like or rather a city like Gibeon, uh, we're all in trouble. Uh, so he gathers together this coalition of kings. Uh, they're glued together around uh, fear, really. They're afraid because uh, Gibeon uh, is, is, a, is a, a group of cities gathered together in, in, in a league, a confederacy. They're on a mountaintop plateau in the central Canaanite region. Uh, they control a major trade route. Uh, they're a mountainous people. They're a warrior-like people. They're really a powerful people in many ways. And so out of fear that Joshua now has captured this strategic location in the center of Canaan, it's going to make it easier for him to launch military strikes to the south and military strikes to the north, which you're going to read about in Joshua chapter 11. It worked out perfectly. Their fears were well-founded, in other words. Out of that fear of this strategic footing that Israel is uh, about to gain and to utilize effectively, he says, let's go up to battle against them. And so, sure enough, the five kings go out to battle. We're told in uh, Joshua 10.6, the men of Gibeon sent a word to Joshua, the camp at Gilgal. And uh, you see that they are absolutely terrified. Do not abandon your servants. Come up quickly. Save us. Help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So they have attacked Gibeon. They are prepared to fight against uh, uh, this group of people that Israel is in league with. And so uh, they send the messenger out to Israel. And notice what Joshua does. Now, it's not really said explicitly. In fact, verse 7 may throw you off. It says, well, Joshua went up to Gilgal with him and his warriors. But it's not exactly like that. 
It appears to us here that what Joshua did was he heard the, the, the testimony of Gibeon being under attack, and he immediately would do the Lord in prayer. He learned something from the past problem. He learned something from the Gibeon episode that when they entered into covenant with Gibeon and they did it without consulting the Lord, that that was a massive mistake. And so what you find here is something like a picture of, of, of Joshua Pray and seeking the mind and will of the Lord. Verse 8 then records for us a God's response to Joshua. It says, The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. You see, as a result of this prayer, as a result of consulting the Lord, God says in absolute, black and white terms, Joshua, get up and get yourself into the fight. Go up. And so Joshua immediately responds to the sovereign promise of God. He gathers the best soldiers of Israel, and he takes off on a very difficult night march over 20 miles uphill to go fight for his friends and allies. In Gibeon. I think about this for a moment. I, I was uh, fascinated by a comment that John Calvin made as he was reflecting on this uh, relationship between verse 8 and 9. The relationship between Joshua going to prayer and then Joshua hearing the sovereign promise of the Lord that no enemy will stand before them and that God will be with them. And then immediately, based upon the sovereignty of that promise, Joshua springs into action. Calvin says this, It is moreover noteworthy that Joshua did not abuse the divine promise by making it an excuse for sluggishness but felt the more vehemently inflamed after he was assured of a happy issue. He says, after finding this out, he exerts himself with a greater zeal. In other words, when, when Joshua finds out about the sovereign promise of God to defeat his enemies, Joshua doesn't just stand still. Joshua doesn't just let go and let God. But Joshua doesn't say, well, God is sovereign over the situation, and if God wants to save Gibeon, and I think he does, because he just said no one will stand before us, then we'll see what God's going to do. Maybe God will lift us up and carry us there. Uh, maybe God will, will uh, miraculously uh, throw these enemies into confusion and defeat them, and they'll all fall on their spears and swords. We don't have to lift a finger. Now, Joshua springs into action based upon the sovereign promise of God. He gets up, he marches all night, he gets his soldiers into battle formation, and he prepares to fight. He springs into activity, though. And that's very important for us to realize the sovereignty of God does not cancel out or mitigate human responsibility. I, I hear people getting confused about this all the time. Uh, if God is sovereign, we might as well just sit on our hands and wait. If God's going to do his work, then, then who are we to presume that, that we can do anything, that we can act, that, that, uh, that there's anything we can do? And so, very often the response of, of the pious is inaction. I'll let go and let God approach. Well, God will be more glorified anyway if we don't try to do anything ourselves. And so we sit and we wait. 
reminded of a saying of acquaintance of mine who repeats it quite often. He says about the Reformed, people like us who believe in the sovereignty of God. He says there's too much standing on the promises and resting in the premises. Too much standing on the promises and resting in the premises. In other words, there's too much uh, confident talk about how much we believe in the sovereignty of God. Too much confident talk about how we know that God is sovereign over every single square inch of life while we sit and do nothing. It's discouraging to see that. But it's, it happens far too often That there are opportunities for us to act, to to advance the kingdom of God, to build the church, to plant churches, to reach out, to do outreach, to go help people who are in distress. And far too often you hear people confidently talking about sovereignty and then sitting back and then raising all kinds of accusations about why now is not the time, the finances are not there, the costs are too high, the risks are too great, the consequences will be too great if we lose. So in honor of the sovereignty of God, we'll sit, we'll fold our hands, and we'll do nothing. Sovereignty does not mandate inaction. Listen to how Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 2. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you to will And to do. You see that? He says, you work. You get busy. You get your hands onto life. uh, You get busy serving the Lord. You get busy fighting his battles. You get busy working on sanctification. Why? Because he says it's God who is at work. Because of the sovereignty of God, there is human responsibility. I hope uh, this morning this challenges us in case there might be any mental confusion on our parts that if God is sovereign over all of life, maybe we really don't need to do anything at all. Just express pious sentiments and let go and let God. That's laziness. It's unacceptable. God has set before us a remarkable and large challenge. It would be very easy for us this morning to say, well, you know, it's so big and it's so large and it's so impossible for us to fulfill. We might as well just sit back too. After all, how can we be used by God to take the gospel to 16 million people to the highest concentrated group of unchurched people in the Western world? who live on our doorstep here. It's too impossible. It's too large. Maybe we should just spend more time building relationships among ourselves. After all, it's a very sinful day in which we live. People don't like the gospel anyway. People like Bill Maher are out there criticizing people who believe in such things as God who can make the sun stand still. Well, this morning, the, the admonition that flows from Joshua is springing into action when he hears about the sovereignty of the Lord. Is an admonition to us. The sovereignty of God mandates 
diligent action. And that's exactly what we see happening now in our text. As, as Joshua goes up to battle now, we see that the Lord fights with Joshua and with Israel. We see that in verses 10 through 15. And what I want you to realize here is that this is a really a split screen. Verses 10 through 11 show uh, on one screen uh, the battlefield from one angle about what God is doing, pursuing his enemies, killing them, running down hailstorms. And the other screen is the very same battlefield, the very same battle, the very same timing, but just shot from a different angle. Fascinating as we see the the battle unfold here in verse 10. You see the Lord is clearly fighting for Israel. Look at all the verbs in verse 10. It says the Lord confounded them before Israel. He slew them with a great slaughter. He pursued them by the way of the ascent of Bethlehem. And he struck them as far as Ezekiel and Makeda. In other words, all of the verbs in verse 10 are God's doings. Now, surely the Lord used Israel. But the perspective of the writer is that it doesn't matter that Israel was doing, they were merely an instrument. It was God all the way, confounding, slaying, pursuing, striking. God is fighting. And then look at verse 11. It says, as they started to flee on the battlefield, it says, and they were on their way to the descent of Bethoron, the Lord threw down large hailstones from heaven as far as Ezekiel. In other words, now, God is not only confounding and slaying, the writer's telling us how. He's, he's raining down stones or hailstones or something from heaven. And it's just pulverizing the opponent. The Lord's fighting for his people, you see. Just as he promised. And then in verse 12, you, you begin to see this a miracle of, of enormous proportions. Let's face it, it, it. It's. I mean, we read verse 11, we say, yeah, the, the hailstones, yeah, it could be a natural phenomenon, it could, could be some meteor shower, there could be some possible natural explanation for it, we think, but, you know, on the other hand, that doesn't make any sense. Why would that have only affected the enemies and not Israel, who was on the same battlefield? That, so if you think about verse 11, it stretches you quite a bit too, but, but verse 12 really blows you away. Because here it says Joshua uh, before the Lord and in the sight of Israel looks at the sun and he says, stand still. Try that today. If you want to save a few more hours in your schedule, just try that. Stand still. You, 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 You smile because you realize it would be foolish for you to say that. It was no more foolish then. Do you ever have record of anybody in the Bible looking at the sun and the moon and saying, Stand still! No. It doesn't matter that it's 2008 now or that it was uh, uh, 1400 B.C. Then nobody talked to the moon that way or the sun. And so because of that, and because the word went on to say that in verse 13, the sun stood still and the moon stopped, there's all kinds of explanations for what this is really saying now. 
Uh, one explanation is that there was a solar eclipse. And, uh, you know, Joshua was just describing, or the writer of Joshua was just describing uh, what happened and knowing about solar eclipses. And in fact, it just turned out that the moment when Joshua said the sun stands still, uh, there was a massive solar eclipse. Well, the problem with that interpretation is that we were able to identify when there were solar eclipses, and there were no solar eclipses in the land of Palestine at this time. Impossible. Didn't happen. Another one was that the sun was darkened. And some people say, well, look at verse 11 and, the, and the, the, the large stones falling from the heavens. It could be that it was an enormous storm of, of gigantic proportions. And it was so large that it darkened the whole area for quite a while. Darkened the moon, the sun. Another was that Joshua was merely asking for a sign. Because, you know, people back then were kind of superstitious. Kind of like people today... Uh, call their psychic hotline or they read uh, they read the newspaper find out about their signs maybe Josh was doing something like that another another uh, this is, I call this the throw your hands up in the air interpretation well it's just figurative <laughs> that's what we always do when we're evangelicals and we can't figure out what the Bible will say we just say it's figurative well look at verse 12 he says, sun stand still. And then verse 13 said, the sun stood still. And then look at the rest of verse 13. It says, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for a whole day. In other words, what the Bible was saying is that the sun stood still. And in other words, what we mean by that is the earth stood still. It stopped rotating on its axis. Time stopped. Okay? That's what it's saying. And, and the only reason why we are afraid to say that is because of people like Bill Maher who say it's 2008. Duh! I said, why is it so hard to believe in 2008? Go take a poll today of people walking down the street randomly. How many of them believe in flying saucers? Really, how many of them believe in extraterrestrials? Just listen to Art Bell Live. There's a lot of people out there who believe a lot of things today. So the duh argument doesn't make sense to me in the first place. But the Word of God says it stood still. And we do nothing as evangelicals by finally drawing a line in the sand and saying, Okay, <laughs> well, yeah, we have plagues in Egypt. We have the Red Sea being parted. We have God making the heavens and the earth. We've got an omnipotent. But, you know, really, when it comes down to the, to the sun standing still, we've got to draw a line here and just say it's figurative. You know, really. Let's all be reasonable, right? And then if we're reasonable about that, then surely unbelievers will say, well, you're so reasonable on the sun standing still. Maybe we'll listen to you. Maybe we'll listen about your Jesus. Wrong. You think about the Bible. You think about what it says. God is omnipotent. God is wise. God is powerful. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. That's the biblical worldview of God. The biblical worldview of reality is that God made the heavens and the earth. He put the sun in its place. He put the stars where they belong. He fashioned the moon. He made it all. Can he make the earth stand still if he could do that? 
that when I think about this, I think about Job chapter 38, when God confronts Job and all of his whining and commiserating with his friends, and he says to Job, he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. He said, who enclosed the sea with its doors? Who commanded the morning and caused the dawn? Where were you when I cast out the Pleiades and strung out the Orion, Job? Where were you? Who are you? What have you done? You see, you either believe in the biblical God or you don't. If you believe in the biblical God and you believe in the biblical worldview that he is the creator, he is sovereign over all things, that he can make the earth stop and he can make the sun stand still and he can freeze time for a moment. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. And if you cannot believe this miracle, you can't believe the rest of them in the Bible either. i got news for you. It doesn't get any easier. How many of us have witnessed a virgin conception? How many of us have seen somebody who was blind all of their life have uh, sight restored to their eyes, who've been deaf, who can finally hear? That's a miracle too, isn't it? How many of us have seen a dead person rise after three days? You know, if it's too hard for God to stop the sun and to freeze time, it's too hard for God to redeem you from your sins. That's it. You either believe the Bible, or you listen to the critics. And they are very reasonable people. Right? It's a great benefit to Israel, though, because as God froze time, Israel was able to chase down their enemies and defeat them. God did exactly what he promised. You have to understand the the proportions of this battlefield. It started on the mountain plateau in the center of Canaan. When God began to fight for his enemies, for Israel, against his enemies, they went north about 10 miles. And then they went south about 15 to 20 miles. All in a day. That is a massive battlefield, even on today's proportions. That is huge. These people are on feet, and they're traveling on foot, and they're using swords and spears. And they had to go across about 20 to 25 miles or more, up and down hills, chasing enemies. They needed all the time that they could muster up. To defeat this enemy. And that's exactly what happened. It says that the Lord defeated his foes on that day. But I want you to see something that is even more marvelous. And that's in verse 14. Now, if the sun didn't stand still. And the the moon didn't stop. And God didn't freeze time. Then verse 14 does not make any sense. Because here is what the writer says in reflecting upon this. He says, there was no day like that before or after. Now here's what I want us to focus on. When the Lord listened to the voice of a man. You see what the writer is marveling about? The writer is not marveling about the fact that God made the sun stand or the moon stand still. The writer is marveling at the power of prayer. He says there's been no day like it when God listened to the voice of a man. Calvin commenting on this gives us help about its application. He says, for to command the sun to stand as if it had not previously obtained permission would have been presumptuous and arrogant. Joshua first asks... And consults God. Having obtained his answer, he boldly commands the sun. 
In other words, what he says is Joshua goes to prayer, he lays out the plan before the Lord, and God assures him that he will do this. Then he prays, God's will be done. He goes on to say, faith borrows confidence of command from the word on which it is founded. In other words, God used the means of this prayer to accomplish the sun standing still. And why this is a significant prayer is because Joshua prayed boldly based upon the will of God. Joshua was convinced that this was the will of God to happen. He prayed boldly that God would hear the prayer, and God answered the prayer. What does that tell you about prayer this morning? It tells you exactly what the Bible says. 1 John 5.14. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to it. It says, this is the confidence which we have before God, that if we ask Anything according to his will, he hears us. Hold on, I am not a uh, health and wealth, prosperity, name it and claim it preacher by any means at all. But, But this is the application. When we pray according to the will of God in confidence, he hears us. Think about how most of our prayers are uttered. Especially in hard times. There's a crisis. There's a sin. There's a problem. There's a sickness. There's hopelessness. And you're sitting here going, where else do I have to turn? Who else can I cry out to? Who else has the resources? But you know... It's not just that we're to go to God as the last resort because everything else looks like it failed. The key to to praying in a way that honors God and and accomplishes His purposes is when we pray and say, Lord, uh, we pray according to Your will. And if it be Your will, do this. If it be Your will, heal this sickness. If it be Your will, save this person. If it be Your will, open up a door of hope and opportunity for us. If it be your will, take the priest's word and apply it sovereignly to the heart. If it be your will, save and help. See, that's how you pray, if it be your will. But you do that in confidence that whenever it's prayed according to the will of God, he answers. Joshua prayed in confidence that this was the will of God. And God answered his prayers. And he defeated Joshua's and Israel's and God's enemies. This is not to be abused. This is not for trivial things, but but we are to pray according to Joshua's model when we are convinced that the thing we are praying for is according to the will of God. We know there's a will of God because... God has revealed his will in Scripture. If it's something that God has said, thus saith the Lord, we have every right and we have every reason. We ought to pray boldly. God, hear our prayers. I get so encouraged by that when I think about the kinds of things that we pray for. What's your biggest problem? When I talk to 
people have problems like me. You have sin in your life. And you go, well, I am so discouraged. I, I, I feel like I'm constantly, uh, I, I'm losing my temper. I, I become impatient. I, I, I do exactly what I know I'm not supposed to do. And it keeps on, it keeps on winning. Right? I don't know about you. Maybe you don't have those problems in your life. You, you, but, you know, it just seems like they just don't stop. Frustrating. Or, or you have somebody in your life who you love and you know is dying and they're going to hell and they don't know Jesus and you desperately want to see them come to the Lord. But you know, you've done all the talking, you've done all the reasoning, uh, you have set forth the facts, and, and all you find is that their heart is like a, a brick wall and you know you don't have any resources. You, you can't reach down inside and say, just believe and, and, and force them. You can't do it. Uh, but the confidence we have when we go against these massive opponents that we face is, what is God's will? What is God's will? Is it God's will for us to break the power of sin? Yes. Is it God's will to see, uh, to see people, uh, his people embracing the promises and, and bringing the elect to eternal life? Of course it is. So, so what do we do? We pray with boldness. And yet uh, this morning I want us to grasp hold of the boldness that you are entitled to for your prayer. Is that if God says, this is my will, you are entitled to pray with fervency, with courage, with diligence, unceasingly knocking on the door of heaven and saying, Lord, hear my prayer. Last thing I want us to notice from our text this morning is the victory that's in the Lord. We're told in 16 through 27 that Joshua mops up these enemies. In fact, the, the route was so bad that the kings who were emboldened and rallying their troops together to go up against Gideon are quivering and hiding out in a cave down in Makeda. And so uh, counterintelligence officers tell Joshua that they're hiding over there. And, and it says that, that Joshua says, uh, seal up the, the mouth of that cave with a big old stone. That's exactly what they did. They sealed that up and then they went on and, and Joshua said, you take out the rest of the enemies. And sure enough, uh, they slaughtered the rest of their foes utterly. Verse 21 says, all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makeda uh, in peace. No one uttered a word against the sons of Israel. But here's what I want us to see. I hope your Bible's still open. Because Joshua brings the people of God together here at Makeda. Where the kings are hiding the cave. It's almost as if, uh, let's, say the, let's say the mouth of the cave is right over there at this door. And uh, he says, gather around. It's almost like it's a uh, storytelling hour. He says, everybody, come up front and sit down right here. They open the door, and the kings come out. And Joshua says, now what I want to do is all of the generals, all of the chief military strategists and leaders, I want you to come forward here. They come to the front of the audience. Joshua brings those kings out of the cave. And look at what he says in verse 24. Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And he says, they came near and they put their feet on the necks. And Joshua said, do not fear or be dismayed. 
Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all of your enemies with whom you fight. Where have we heard those words before? Joshua chapter 1. Before Israel has entered into Canaan, before Israel has crossed over the Jordan River, before Jericho's walls came a-tumbling down, before Ai, God came to Joshua and he said these exact words to him. Do not fear or be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. See, he's admonishing Israel now with the very same words that he had received. And now he admonishes them to go forward and to fight because he says in verse 25, Thus... The Lord will do to all your enemies. Thus. In other words, he says, just as God is doing to these kings right now, who you have your feet on, God will do to all the rest of the enemies that you fight if you fight in the power and the strength of the Lord. In other words, what Joshua does is he admonishes them to action based upon the Lord's fulfilled promises. I hope you heard that. He admonishes them to action based on the Lord's fulfilled promises. Thus, for thus the Lord will do. You know, that was so encouraging to Israel because what do they have? They have enemies to the south and they have enemies to the north. They've, only, they've really only defeated a handful of people so far. Uh, the, the obstacle for Israel still is vast and enormous. And he takes the leading military people and he says to them in the sight and the hearing of Israel and their mighty warriors, he says to them, thus the Lord will do. In other words, he admonishes them to action based upon God's fulfilled promises. And that passes from Joshua to Israel to you this morning. God encourages you to action based upon his fulfilled promises. And you say, Pastor Sotel, are you sure that's not just empty motivation? Are you sure that's not just empty motivation? Uh, God says this to Joshua, Joshua says this to Israel, and you're drawing a simplistic equation between the then and the now. Well, I'm very confident that it's not simply empty motivation because of what Paul says in Romans 16.20 as he's speaking to the people of God. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He applies the same promises that God is going to fight against his and our enemies, and he's going to destroy them. He takes those same promises now, Paul, and he applies them to the church, and he says the very same things to us. The God of peace will soon crush. How is he going to do that? He's going to do it through Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15 says, He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet.